Welcome back to the Childhood Cancer Perspective. Thank you all so much once again for sticking with me through these episodes. This week I want to speak about something that is going back to day zero or day one, if you will, of JC's diagnosis and of the start of her battle and her fight against pediatric cancer. So obviously we are about a season and a half into this, but I wanted to get back to that very beginning about how things started for us and what the initial hospital stay was like, what the initial hospital stay meant for us and the information that we were able to gather. Now, on January 30th of 2020, we were attempting to have a birthday party for our oldest daughter, um, attempting to, we had ordered out dinner, we had bought a cake, we were attempting to have a party. And this was all after months of trying to get answers for JC, trying to get answers for why things were happening the way that they were happening, why she was feeling bad, why she was getting sick, having the certain pains um, in her arms, why she had her eye turn in suddenly. We were trying to get answers for this for months. So January 30th was kind of the culmination of everything. We had had, when her eye turned in during the holidays, we ended up getting an emergency kind of an appointment. And that was to take a look at her retinas, take a look at the optic nerves, take a look at everything and to see if there was something going on that could be better explained. As I was receiving or getting dinner that evening from Red Robin, um, I got a phone call or I got a text message actually from my wife telling me we have to go to Milwaukee now. Not a whole lot of explanation. Um, not, I don't remember the exact words. I mean, I could probably go back and find the text, but not a, not a whole lot of explanation as to what was going on. But when I got back home, it was it was said that there was there was swelling of her optic nerve and swelling of the optic nerve, based on everything she had been going through, was signs of something very serious and something that we needed to have checked out immediately. And that meant that it didn't matter that it was 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock at night. We needed to get to Milwaukee, two, two and a half hours, depending on traffic. We needed to get there ASAP. So at that moment in time, we not only were trying to comfort JC and trying to calm her down that this is not that big of a deal. We just got to go get checked out and trying to downplay it a little bit, even though we were both scared as hell. And I know my wife had been... Um, kind of WebMDing things for a while and to get that optic nerve and all the other symptoms and put them in there, there was something that was coming up and kept popping up that we did not want to be true. So in that time, we were all, you know, we're trying to do this, but then we're also trying to comfort our oldest daughter. You know, this is your birthday and this, all this shit is happening and, you know, we're sorry. This is, this is not the way that we wanted this to go, but we have to go. And, at that point also, I was calling, uh, we were calling my sister, we were calling uh, my wife's mom, trying to find somebody to come and stay with the girls because we didn't know how long we were going to be. We didn't know if it was just going to be, you know, overnight. We didn't know what it was going to be. We had no idea that when we left the house that night, what we were going to be gone for two weeks, essentially. And so we got pretty decently far into the trip before they finally got a hold of my sister who came and stayed with our, our kids until... Uh, my mother-in-law was able to come and stay with them. And so that was that took a little bit of weight off our shoulders, a little bit of stress away that our kids were going to be, you know, they weren't going to be alone by themselves, and especially on our daughter's birthday, that they were going to have somebody there with them. And also hope, you know, kind of keep their mind off of things with what was going on. And so we 
we headed to Milwaukee. We got there. We checked in. We were in the waiting room for hours, even though we they called ahead. I mean, the only thing that calling ahead did was allow them to prepare that we were coming and have our name in a chart. But otherwise, it, we were there for hours waiting before we finally got checked in and then back in the waiting room. And then we were finally got into a room where JC at that point was so exhausted that she just fell asleep. So exhausted from the day. And it is late. It is the middle of the night. At this point, it is it is late, late midnight, one o'clock in the morning. I think it was late, and we finally got them to come in, and they did an emergency CT based on everything we did. And I'm telling you that it was within minutes. I mean, it was not long. And CTs are really quick. That's a quick scan. They can see the images pretty much right away. And that early in the morning, it wasn't like there was a whole line of people that were waiting for this. So within minutes, they came in. The doctor sits down. As soon as the doctor sits down, Trisha knows what's up. She knows something's wrong. <clears throat> Excuse me. She knew something was up. And as soon as that happened, um, she goes, it's a tumor, isn't it? It's it's a tumor. And, and the doctor says she's got a mass on her brain. And at that point, and for that day and actually the next day, it was called a mass. It was not called a tumor. It was not called cancer. It was not called anything but a mass. Um, and so she breaks down instantly. I am in complete shock and just walk over, put my arm around her and just stand there blankly. No emotion, no anything. Just I didn't know what to do. And I felt I just needed to be there. I needed to be strong, but I, I didn't know how to react. And we get so, you know, because of that, you're getting admitted, period. There's no questions about it. You're being admitted. And, you know, again, we've got a bag full of a, a couple, you know, changes of clothes but that's it because we had no idea that we were going to be there for two weeks and we get it we get into a room where it's kind of like a little bit better of a waiting room area or a waiting room for her to be she's in bed she's got monitors on and stuff like that and a child life specialist comes in to kind of explain to her what's going to happen um, after we had met with another doctor that said okay the, with the the swelling of the brain and um, hydrocephalus essentially what's going on, we're going to put a small drain in the top of her head, in the, one of the ventricles. And what that's going to do is that's going to allow that pressure to release, and that's going to make her feel better. It, you know, it may even help with the swelling of the optic nerve. So we're going to, we're going to, that's going to be the first step. We said, okay. So in early, early hours of the morning, I'm signing the consent form, and I've talked about this. I'm signing the consent form on the back of a tissue box, because that's all we had at that time in the morning. And this is consent that they're going to go in and put a drain. And then, of course, there's all the, you know, what ifs in the form like that. But what what choice do you have? So we sign the form. We know that that's coming. And we get admitted into um, the next floor. And then we're there until, you know, the next, we're there until we get, you know, we meet the doctor, the surgeons for the next day for them to come in and talk about what's going to happen. And it was all day. And this was a rather short um, surgery. It wasn't anything super um, intense or super anything like that. It was going to be rather routine. They're just going to put this drain in there. It's going to help. Um, and this one, when, as soon as she went back, I remember that Trish and I went to the cafeteria and ate like we hadn't eaten in about a week. And the whole time, really thinking the worst, but at the same time thinking, you know what, it's no big deal. It's just a mass. We don't know what it is yet. We don't have a positive um, pathology report. We have no idea. So we're not going to lose our minds over thinking that it's, it's the absolute worst here. 
Um, so we didn't. We just kept moving along, and we, you know, we ate. We waited for her to get done with her surgery. Then we went and saw her, um, and and she looked great, and everything was, and she looked like she was, you know, she was in good spirits. And so we were admitted. Um, <clears throat> to the neurology floor and from that point it was waiting for the next step which is to get the complete um, surgical removal of whatever this tumor was now that was the first time we had heard the word tumor when we had met the neurosurgeon that came in to talk about doing the resection and he said it's a, you know we've been told it's a mass he goes it's a tumor he goes he actually said I know exactly what it is just by without seeing the pathology I know what it is he didn't say it was cancer he didn't say anything else he just said I know what it is now to this day and actually I've been in contact with him recently to this day I don't know if him saying I know what it is is that he knew what it was because of the location or if he knew what it was by the looks of it or anything I don't know the answer to that he just said that he knows what it is based on you know what he's seen in the past so he said okay he's gonna go in he's gonna get as much of it out as possible you know they'll remove a piece of her skull and they'll go in and they'll they'll do the best they can now messing around with the brain is something that is a hundred percent a crapshoot that something could go wrong and you could mess with something that could control your auditory responses your your ability to to think or respond or speak or walk or talk any of that could be affected by one wrong move you're messing around with with the nerve center of your of your entire body and and anything that could happen could be detrimental so this is the scariest part when she goes in for that that first um, that major brain resection surgery. This is the time when you are freaking out the most, and because you don't know who's going to come out of that room, you don't know who's going to come out. Is it going to be JC? Is it going to be JC but in a vegetative state? Is it going to be JC that doesn't remember who you are or isn't able to do the things she was able to do when she went in? We have no idea. This first surgery was ten hours long. Trisha and I closed down the um, the waiting room. We were there until they basically shut the lights off, and we were the only ones there. Um, I remember just sitting there, just not knowing. And finally, finally, when we see you know Dr. Lou, which is our surgeon, come through the room, and he tells us, you know, I think we got it all. She did well. She did great. And they're really good about every hour, every couple hours, you'd get kind of like a text. Um, from the from the the nurse in the operating room that would send you you know she's doing great everything's going on schedule things like that he said I think I got it all um, she did well and we're like oh thank God and at this point Trish and I haven't slept for shit in three or four days and we go so we go to see her and she is literally sitting there with a popsicle and there's pictures on on Facebook of this popsicle in her hand and she's smiling you know like no big deal and it's just the most incredible feeling ever um, that I remember that I, I, mean, I, went, I remember I made a video right away just to post it on Facebook because again trying to update everybody this was the it was the easiest route for us just to use social media and I remember being so incredibly thankful that she had able to come she came through and that you know not that I never had a doubt because I knew she was strong but 
it's the scariest place you could ever be in to not know for 10 hours. I mean, that's almost half a day you're waiting and not seeing her face and not, not knowing if she's going to come out of there the same. And it was just the most incredible thing for us to see her um, smiling at us and be in decent spirits after that long. She had her hair in a, in, you know, I mean, from the first surgery, like she had her hair in a beautiful braid and, and which we, to the, you know, we always talked about how the nurse did her hair and it was so incredible. And, um, her anesthesiologist was an amazing guy and we, you know, we were glad to have them also, you know, in subsequent surgeries and the following, but that was the first step in really getting everything going and attempting to move forward and thinking that we were doing really, really well. Now, when that tumor came out, it essentially, it, it fixed what was going on with her eye. Like that was the best thing to see because when she was, before she had that resection surgery, when she would look forward at you, she would have to turn her entire head sideways in order to look straight because her eye would not, was not kind of tracking the way that it was supposed to. And so after that surgery, she it kind of went back to normal and everything was good. And everything was going well. Her recovery was going well. Everything was, was lining up where it needed to line up. And, you know, her strength and her hands. And they told us that when she comes out, she's probably going to have, you know, a little bit of weakness on one side. Uh, maybe a little bit of a difficult walking. She had none of that. She had strength. She was able to get up and move. <clears throat> she Everything was good. And that was the positive that we needed. Now, because of the way that this is set up and the way that her surgeries and the way that um, the tumor was in her brain, she would have MRIs daily to check the fluid levels, to check, um, to check for the mass, to check if there was any, any other spots anywhere along. Because this type of tumor, these CNS tumors, which is your central nervous system, um, they're basically flowing through your spinal fluid they, they tend to kind of go from your brain and they go down your spine and they spread through other parts of your body. So what they're doing is they're always searching to make sure. Now she never had a spot on her spine ever. It never got to that point. As a matter of fact, the only tumor she had was that one in the ventricle of her brain. There was never anything else in the beginning. There was never anything there. And she never had tumor cells in her spinal fluid, which was good because that meant that it wasn't really spreading throughout the rest of her body. So she would have those every day. So she had an MRI the next day following the surgery to check to see if they had gotten it all. Now, unfortunately, what he saw, he pulled us into a room and he said, it looks like there's a little bit left around the edges because it could be scar tissue or it could be a little bit left. And I want to make sure that we don't leave anything behind. So I'm going to go in and I'm going to I'm going to do another surgery and I'm going to go in and I'm going to remove what's in there and make sure that we get it 100% clean. We said, okay. Now this surgery was done at the hospital next door to us and it was done a little bit. It wasn't as long. This wasn't a long day for us. It was, I mean, it was about half as long, but it wasn't like the 10-hour surgery. This was like a cleanup operation going in to make sure they got everything out so that we could start fresh. Now, this day, when they did this surgery, we were in, like I said, we were at the hospital next door, and this was a different hospital than Children's. It's attached to the Children's Hospital in Milwaukee. It's called Freighter. They do mostly adult patients, but 
we were there to have this second surgery. It had a, the operating room, like when I, we went in to uh, the waiting area, but the operating room itself looked like an arena, and it was massive. And she was in good spirits. She was smiling the entire time. Everything was great. Um, you know, she knew she was going in, just get this last thing in there. She wasn't scared. She was just incredible the amount of strength that she was able to give us while we're, or mother and I are literally just breaking down inside. So you went into a smaller waiting room and then we sat and we waited and about every, I don't want to say it was every two hours or so, every hour, it was every hour, but we would get a call. Like they would literally call the waiting room and they would tell us, okay, everything's good. Um, she's, you know, she's doing well, we're this far along and they would kind of keep updating you. And then from there we had, um, we were waiting and waiting and that's when our oncologist, that's when the oncologist that we had at that point came over to speak to us. And this was the first time that we had heard the word cancer in the entire, um, situation. Like we you know when we get to the hospital, you end up with every doctor in the world you get you get oncology you get you know you get neurosurgeons you get social workers you get you know child life you get just bombarded with everybody coming in palliative care whatever everybody's coming in to talk to you and when they do that you don't know which way's up but you just kind of take as much in as you can and work with it now when he came in he sat down with us and at this point they've had a chance to do pathology on the tumor that they had removed the day before and he said, okay, this is, he goes, the, tu the, the tumor is something called choroid plexus carcinoma. It's a very rare tumor, and it's in the, prog and, and, and he has a very, very thick accent. It's very hard to understand. But what he said was, it's, the prognosis is not good from this type of tumor. Not her specifically, but the type of tumor, the prognosis is not good. Not what you want to hear, again, blank faces, emotions, and immediately we're searching on the internet, trying to figure out what this tumor is, what the survival rate is, what the attack is on it. What do we do? What do we do the next step? We find out that this is a tumor that attacks 30 children on average a year in the U.S. That's it. That's not a lot. That's not a lot of data. That's not a lot of um, protocol research. That's not a lot of understanding of something if it's only attacking 30 children a year. Um, and so that's not a fantastic outlook. But we said, you know what? She's had a total resection. This com this thing is completely gone. Once they came out, and then that, you know from that surgery, it was once again everything was cleaned out, 100% total resection. You know, this is what you have to look forward to as far as her recovery. Now, that was, again, it was the weakness. It was the, the cognitive delays. It was all this kind of stuff that they thought was going to keep her from really moving forward. And then they kept the drain stayed in to make sure that everything was flowing the right way and that there was no buildup of hydrocephalus or she was not getting hydrocephalus from buildup of fluid in her brain. So that stayed in until, you know, the day that we left. And that was... You know, once all that stuff was done, and you know, every time you come out of a uh, surgery, you go to the ICU. So we were in the ICU for days and days on end, and that is the worst fucking place ever. Not because of the people, but because it is just a small box about the size of this room that I'm in right now, and about 17 monitors and everything that makes noise and wires and everything. It's horrible. I don't understand how there's not more head injuries in the ICU from you just trying to duck out of the way of the monitors and everything else. But it's 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 not a comforting place to be. It really isn't. 
But once you're stable from your surgery, then we're moved into the neuro floor. And the neuro floor, we are in a, I mean, honestly, a massive private room with um, a bed and, and there's a couch for and a chair and there's everything in there that's just us. It's only us. It's a private room. She's got her own space. Um, and we just kind of are just trying to take it easy. She's got her PT that she has to do and all this follow-up after these surgeries that have proven that that her and MRIs daily, um, but everything that has to be, you know, proven that she, so she's safe to go home. And that is that she can walk, she can talk, she can eat, she can go to the bathroom on her own. Um, she can do simple schoolwork, things like that, that they'll bring in teachers to kind of test and make sure that she's kind of on track with that. And she honestly impressed everybody. And at this point, we're a, we're a few days, we're a handful of days away from her birthday, which is February 14th. And we wanted, and we remember coming home or coming out of the surgery and telling our neurosurgeon, you know, we honestly, you know, our goal would be to be able to be out of here by Valentine's Day. That's her birthday. We hate to have her spend it here. I don't think, you know, it wasn't us trying to rush recovery. It was that we didn't want her to spend her birthday in the hospital. So we pushed and we said, you know, this is what we want. And he said, I really, really doubt that that's going to happen just based on, you know, what she's been through and everything like that. It, it's, it's a very, very slim possibility. We said, okay, you know, we understand, you know, if we're here for two months, we're here for two months. We want to make sure that she's taken care of. Now, um, we, she was going, she hated PT. I'm going to put that out. She fucking hated PT. She despised it. People coming in telling her you got to get up and move or throw this ball here or walk here. She hated it. She just wanted to be left the fuck alone. She had been through so much that all she wanted to do was control something, and that was that. Leave me alone. But she did it because at that point when you put it in front of her and say, listen, I know you don't want to do this, but if you don't, we can't go home and we have to stay here. And she would reluctantly get it done and do it. But between the PT and you know, her eating, and, and I will tell you this, I mean, on the camera you'll be able to see it, but um, her appetite had been so garbage for so long. And then finally, when she got, you know, the, when the surgeries were done and, and she was feeling better and, the, um, and all the restrictions were lifted, I remember that, in, that we got her mac and cheese, which is her, she was a mac and cheese connoisseur. And I remember that the first bite of mac and cheese that she had was like the best thing in the entire world. I mean, her eyes rolled in the back of her head, and she's like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. And that's the one memory I don't have on camera somewhere, and I wish I did, because she just loved it. Like, that was the greatest thing ever, and I think one of the best things that her mother and I ever saw, because that was something we were missing for so long was her having that, that appetite and being happy and, and not worrying about anything and, and just being a kid again. And we finally were able to kind of get through all of that stuff in, you know, two weeks of, of signing papers and MRIs and CTs. And um, when she was all done with that, we were able to take her for a walk. We took her all the way down to the to the cafeteria, and we walked her all the way back up, and she did so well. Uh, that was when she was finally be able to be detached from all the machines and monitors. So we're able to do that. And we get her, you know, and then we get to the February 12th. And, um, you know, the other one of the other neurosurgeons there and said, you know, essentially you have to prove to us that you're going to need a shunt. Now, a shunt would be something that would be permanently placed in the body that would do the same thing 
as what the drain was doing, but it would drain it into your um, your stomach cap, your midsection, and basically your body would just absorb the fluid um, as opposed to it draining out of your body and then they just removed that way. And what they would do is they would raise your head up and they would and then they would turn the level of the drain down to see what would happen. And if nothing came out, and after a certain time, they'd say, okay, it looks like everything has subsided, everything is leveled out. So they would take, they took the drain out. Um, and once they took the drain out, they said, do you want to go home? And she said, yes. Now on February 12th, we took her home. She got to go home two days before her birthday. And I've said it before, but I'll say it again. She walked herself out of the hospital 12 days essentially two weeks after having two major brain surgeries she walked herself out of that hospital and it was the most incredible and amazing thing that i think we've ever seen in our entire life because when we walked into that hospital we didn't know what was going to happen we didn't know what we were going to be left with we didn't know what was going to change about her if anything we get all the way out. Our car is the only one in the visitor parking lot in front of the emergency room that is covered in snow because we had had, obviously, weather at that point in time. Everybody else is clean, but our car had been sitting there, you know, for 12 days. So it was the only thing covered. And driving home with her in the car, we drove right to, or we, we came home, we got her cleaned up, we got her dressed, we did her hair, and then we went over to the school to surprise her sisters because we had not told them we were coming home. And... That was amazing. We had not seen our our other two girls in two weeks. Um, they came to visit, you know, one time when we were there right before her major, the first major surgery. They came to visit my sister. I brought them up, um, and then my uh, my brother-in-law and his wife. They had come to see us, and we had some other friends stop by to see us, which is amazing. But it had been the first time we'd really been in civilization and seen, you know, seen our other two kids in two weeks, and it was. That was, you know, part of this journey um, and part of it that I've talked about and I'll probably talk about more is that, you know, when you're in the hospital, when you're doing these, these long treatments and you're doing these long therapies and these, these um, trips for testing and things like that, you're missing so much. And me personally, I missed so much when I was in the hospital with Jace. I mean, there were, you know, for all of her chemos, there was you know, three, four, five days at a time. Um, I'm missing sports games and concerts and things like that. And when I was in for her stem cells, I mean, in total, in total, that was, you know, 52 days uh, minus a day or two at home. But I mean, 52 days that, that I missed out on so much and it was hard. It was hard not to be around my other two kids, to be around my wife, to be in my own house, my own bed, to have JC be home and just be with her family and not stuck in a hospital. I mean, we made the best of it, but it was hard. But that that first two weeks of everything, and to be honest, we left, you know, to go back to it, we left on that on that day, on that February 12th, we left, but we didn't have a plan. We didn't have a plan of attack. And that's something that has been very, very different and controversial, I think, in everything that we've learned over the past few years is that we didn't leave with a plan, with a plan of chemo or radiation or anything. We left with, with really nothing. And um, 
you know, they did they did genetic testing. They tested for Leifermini, um, and Leifermini is you know a, a, like a it's a gene mutation that was leaves you more susceptible to something like this. She did not have that. As a matter of fact, any of the deciding factors that would lead her to be more susceptible to a coronary plexus tumor, she did not have. So she was just really unfortunate, like I've mentioned in the past with childhood cancer. It's just shitty luck. It's not, you know, it's not so much based on food and activities or environment or things like that. It's just shitty luck, and it doesn't discriminate against age or or, or race, or, you know, color. It does. It, it just doesn't. It it sucks all the way around, and it it makes it very difficult um, to really understand why it happens, which is why we try to fight so hard to actually make uh, make a difference. But yeah, when we left that, um, sorry, when we left that that day, we didn't have a plan. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know where we were going to be um, weeks later, months later. We had no idea. And it was it was then kind of go home and, and wait. So she kind of went home. She went essentially went back to school and and tried to be, go back as normal and everything like that. And we did everything we could to you know to just make things as normal as possible. Like listen, we had a horrible run in with this, but you know you've done so well and you know you know we thought we were going to be that statistical you know um, I guess just diamond in the rough. We were going to beat it and it was going to be that easy. And we waited and waited. And we finally got set up to have, you know, to we had to drive back to Milwaukee to get a plan set up, and that plan meant that okay, now we've had the total resection, you've had drain removed, you've got, you know, you've had so many MRIs that you know there's no, um, there's no, uh, there's no tumor cells in the spinal fluid. You know, this, you know, you essentially is contained to that spot. What we want to do is we want to do targeted radiation. We want to do. Um, we want to do five rounds of chemo and then we want to kind of reevaluate from there. So what they were going to do is they set it up to do 30 rounds of radiation, five rounds of chemo, and then from there they would reevaluate and kind of, you know, go from there. So that is something that I will talk about in another subsequent episode about her treatment in more detail and what she did um, from her radiation to her chemos to her stem cell transplant, to all that leading up to it, and I'll talk more in detail about it. But that was that was the biggest thing, I think, for us that was really weird about all of this, and again, that I said didn't really make sense, was that we didn't leave that hospital with a plan, and every other um, family that we've really come in contact with, it almost seems like every single time they leave, they don't leave the hospital as soon as this is done. You do the resection, you do the tumor resection, you do... You do the genetic testing, you do the pathology, and from that point, you start chemo right away. Like, you're not sent home, and then that's the end of it. You start it right away. And for us, it was like a month, and then they finally got us a plan, and then we started things for radiation. And when that was done, they were supposed to start chemo. And, you know, that was that was going to be the plan all along. And it didn't make... I guess to us at that point, we're like, maybe this is normal because I've said in the past, we don't have anybody, we didn't have anybody in this community that we could bounce ideas or ask questions or understand why it was done this way. It was learning it as we were going that there's, generally speaking, I think everybody that we've ever talked to, as soon as they got the diagnosis for cancer, they started their treatment right away. This wasn't like, 
hey, we'll see you in a month. No, it was, hey, we're going we're gonna to start you on treatment right now. Now, a lot of this could have to do with the fact that her tumor type and her cancer type was so rare that there was no specific protocol they could go looking for and find and just get things started. They would have to reach out, which they did. So I will detail in more about her treatment schedule, about the plan of action that was taken, the collaboration with other hospitals, um, and I will put that all out there so that we can, you know, I can discuss more exactly how it happened and you can understand better about what was done and why it was done and what decisions we made and if we had a choice, if we would go back and change any of those decisions. Because um, you know the old saying is that if you knew then what you know now, would you make a change? And, you know, for some things, maybe yes. Uh, for some things, I don't think we would change our, our minds and I think we would kind of go along the same path. And a lot of that is situational. A lot of that is, is just trying to give the best opportunities in life to your child without taking it away by, you know, putting them through something that's going to be extremely detrimental. But they're all personal choices and you, you know, you kind of have to live with it. And, but as a parent, you have to make hard choices sometimes and you don't really know what's going to happen and you're hoping for the best. But that is going to be this week's episode. Um, again, I thank you guys for sticking with me. That was talking about day zero or day one, if you'd like. Um, from that point, we had 520 days with our daughter from, from the point of diagnosis to the point she passed. And everything we had, that's the beginning of it. Um, I think next week and the week after, I will talk about her treatment plans. I will talk about exactly what was done and the decisions we made. And then we will start getting forward on uh, moving into guests on the show. I keep saying it, but I'm still working on the logistics of that. But hopefully it'll happen soon. So thanks, everybody, so much. I will see you all next week.